my name is CJ, and I'm calling from Houston, Texas. My wife and I moved here because we thought this was a state that believed in personal liberty. But with the recent abortion ban and voting restriction laws, it seems like that's not really the case. Uh, so we will be voting with our feet in the next few years. We are leaving Texas looking for a place that actually does believe in an individual's right to choose how they want to live their life and who they want their representatives to be. We cover a lot of legislation here on 1A, and sometimes we like to take a breath and circle back after it's passed. This hour, we go to the Lone Star State and look at two different sets of restrictions. One applies to voting, the other abortion. Both represent the power of the state legislature and have some Texans reevaluating their relationship with the state itself, like the person we just heard from. Let's start with elections. Next week, the first in a long line of U.S. primaries will be held in Texas. It's the first major test for a controversial set of voting restrictions known as SB1. The law was signed last September after a flood of protests, which peaked with state Democrats flying to Washington to break quorum and delay a vote on the bill. Later on, we'll discuss another set of restrictive measures that passed in Texas last year. We're coming up on the sixth month anniversary of SB 8, a state law which bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing Texas elections and a couple of bills that may have an impact on those elections. New reporting from KUT shows a surge in rejected mail-in ballots and a whole lot of headaches for election workers. Ashley Lopez is a reporter with KUT in Austin. Also with us is Texas Civil Rights Project Senior Staff Attorney James Slattery. So Ashley, remind us, what is in SB1? Well, I mean, there are a lot of things in this bill. I mean, SB1 amounts to a pretty significant overhaul of the state's election code. It does a it does a, a kind of a few buckets of things. For one, it bans 24-hour voting and drive-through voting. And while a lot of counties um, across the state don't they haven't used this in the past, it ha- it was used during the pandemic during the 2020 election in um, some pretty big counties, including where Houston is. Um, The law also puts in some new uh, ID requirements for vote by mail. That's what's been causing most of the the headache 
uh, so far. But also, you know, there's new rules for people who need help at the polls, uh, mostly disabled voters, and, you know, some new restrictions on, you know, election officials themselves, which are usually county officials. So it does it does a lot of things. James, according to KUT, 38% of all submitted mail-in ballots in Harris County have been returned for correction. That's the most populated county in Texas. Why are they rejecting so many mail-in ballots? So uh, voters are essentially falling afoul of the vote-by-mail ID requirement that Ashley mentioned. So under this new law, in order to vote by mail in Texas now, you have to put a Texas driver's license number or your social security number on your vote by mail materials. And that number must match what is in the government's official voter file for you. And basically every way in which this this could go wrong is going wrong. Voters are overlooking this new requirement because it is easy to miss on a complicated form. Uh, Voters are using old forms that don't have the fields on them. But most, I think, egregiously and most importantly, government records in the elections office do not have all of the ID numbers uh, that voters are putting on their forms. And so voters are following the requirement, but government records are not updated in a way such that they will match what the voter is putting down. And so now these applications and ballots are being rejected. So, for example, someone may put their social security number on the ballot, but their license number is actually what's on the election record? Yeah, so it's very common. Uh, I myself would have fallen into this situation because when I moved to Texas, I did not have a Texas driver's license before I registered to vote. So I put my social security number down on my voter registration form. Now, were I to vote by mail, I've since gotten a Texas driver's license, and the law would require me to put that number down, which obviously does not match my social security number. Now, some of these rejections are happening this month. The primary election is next week. So what does that mean for voters who need to sort out these ID issues, James? Basically, now for voters who fall into the situation, they have to cure their their ballots. And the curing process is very complicated. Um, The easiest way to do it is that voters can go on a new website uh, that exists to track their vote-by-mail ballots and fix the numbers there. But Texas has adopted a really complicated process where for some voters, they will be mailed their ballot back. And so voters then have to fix the number on the website and mail their ballot back. Um, Others will not have their ballot sent back to them. And so they can do it online as well, or they can come in person and vote, or they can come in person to the elections office and, and fix the problem. But you can see, even as I'm trying to explain it, I am uh, 20, 15 years out of law school, and even I struggle to articulate the Byzantine uh, requirements of this law and, like, heaven help voters who are trying to figure it out as well. Now, Ashley, you recently spoke to Isabel Longoria. She's the Harris County Elections Administrator. Mail ballots are people's votes. And so I'm very concerned, not just with the complexity of the process, but how that added complexity is going to increase the number of mail ballots that we have to reject. This is not something I can outwork, right? No matter how many hours I stay up in the day, no matter how many team members we get here, no matter how many people we put on the phones to help voters, at the end of the day, this hurts voters. Ashley, what do these mass rejections mean for election workers? Well, I mean, obviously there's frustration. You know, Isabel has a a lot of things that she's kind of worried about. One, I mean, I guess the most basic is she's worried that this will make it just like a longer 
process to get votes posted at the end of the night, to get election results to people. Because if you're processing, you know, vote, vote by mail ballots, you know, for a longer period of time trying to, you know, figure this out for voters in time, it's like going to just take longer to do the work of actually posting election results. So that's one. Two, you know, as she mentioned, you know, when she says outwork this law, you know, she says there, there's only so many hours in a day and so much staff she can have to deal with, you know, helping voters figure out, you know, these new this new ID matching process. If there is a problem sending it back in time or getting them on the phone, if there's just not enough time to use the mail to sort it out. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you know, folks like, you know, Isabel Longoria say their the whole job is just to like make it easier for voters to vote. And, you know, this law has presented just a lot of hurdles in like doing that since it's been passed. Yeah. James, does the elections infrastructure in Texas have enough funding to implement all these changes? No, the, the Texas election infrastructure uh, barely operates even in the best of times. It is chronically underfunded, understaffed uh, because of purposeful neglect uh, by the state government uh, who gets whose leaders are elected under this underfunded system and have quite an incentive to keep it that way. And Texas is unusual also in having 254 counties. And so some places like Houston in Harris County or Dallas and Dallas County, you know, those are relatively well-funded and staffed departments, but you have literally hundreds of counties in rural areas where it may only be one or two people at most in the elections office who already like struggle to implement the previous law's requirements and now must do this added crazy process as well. Ashley, briefly, Texas's primary is next Tuesday. Do you have any idea how these new, rule, new rules will impact Election Day? I mean, I, as I mentioned, it could be a long night getting results back as, you know, election workers deal with vote, uh, vote by mail ballots. And, and you know, there could be people trying to vote last minute instead of like waiting to, to sort out their ballot. I mean, I, I think there could be some confusion. There always is. But with stuff like this, you know, happens when there's new rules, it just becomes more complicated. What about the elderly or people with disabilities? Are you tracking how they're being affected? Yeah, so they are particularly uh, affected by the new vote by mail requirements. So one thing that is different in Texas than in many other states is that only a few Texans actually get to vote by mail here. And among those populations are people 65 and up, people who are disabled, and people who are away from home. And so when we talk about this high rejection rate of vote by mail ballots, we are talking about elderly voters, we are talking about disabled voters, and we are often talking about college students. And again, I think it is no accident that a new law was passed that hurts those voters in particular. Ashley, Texas has been lumped in with a bunch of states that are implementing new voting restrictions, but how is Texas unique? Well, Texas had stricter laws than most of the country to begin with. You know, when states, you know, start changing their laws and looking at their election code and making voting harder, you know, and Texas takes part in that, it's just starting from a different place. It's starting from, you know, as, as James mentioned, like we already, you know, you're adding restrictions to vote by mail in the state where a lot of people don't have access to it. Most voters don't have access to vote by mail. So, you know, a lot of times when, you know, Texas is making new and stricter voting rules, they're just sort of like cutting away at in the margins of like the few ways that people can vote. And it's, you know, compared to the rest of, you know, if you look at like Georgia, for example, you know, a lot of things that Georgia 
um, Georgia's law, you know, changed in vote by mail were already things that were illegal in Texas and weren't, you know, part of how the the vote by mail program is run here. So it's just it, Texas is a is a different animal just because it's already been one of the harder places in the country to vote. Well, here's another voicemail we got from one of you in Texas. I am uh, the ripe age of 66 years old, so I was looking forward to mail-in balloting. And uh, because of all the the uh, rejected ballots uh, and the trouble with identification and precise identification, I just decided, you know, I'm going to brave it, and, and we're going to do either the day of the election or we're going to do early voting. But just it, there's too many obstacles. There's too much uncertainty. And I think that's the reason these laws were passed, to increase uncertainty. James, what do you make of Robert's comment? I think he's dead on. I mean, the overall effect of this is I don't blame people for looking at this situation and thinking, well, what am I supposed to do here? And voting by mail is supposed to be a safe and easy and convenient way to vote. And there's the, there wasn't even a problem <laughs> with the vote by mail system uh, that had been identified. Uh, the only purpose behind these laws is to make it harder to vote, to make it more confusing to vote, and to discourage people from voting. Ashley, what will you be watching for in the run-up to Election Day and then on the day itself? Well, actually, I am listening out for callers like you just had. You know, I am. I have been already hearing from people who are deciding to not vote by mail because they find this this new process overwhelming and they're just really scared of running into a problem where their their ballot might be rejected and not be able to get cured in time for for it to, to be cast to for it to be counted in the election. So I, that you know what this means for voters as they're trying to cast their ballot is like going to be the key focus uh, you know for my reporting because you know, for some people, you know, shifting from vote by mail to in-person voting might not be the same hurdle it is for someone with more serious disabilities, you know, someone who needs to rely on on that program. So, you know, I think those are those are the some of the, some of the things I'm going to be looking at, as well as what this means for local election officials like, uh, you know, Isabel Longoria in Houston. You know, what does this mean for getting election results in a timely manner and and, you know, what this means for their ability to help voters, you know, cast a ballot and, and be counted in, in this election. When we talk about the curing process for ballots that have been returned to voters, how much time do they have to correct that ballot to make sure it counts? They, they have until six days after the election to, to go in person and cure those ballots. And they can also uh, cure online and uh, if they don't want to go about curing their ballot at all, they can go vote in person, uh, which, though, is obviously not an option for people who are away from home um, and uh, for people who are voting by mail because they have serious mobility issues. James, what about for you? What are you watching in the lead up to Election Day and on Election Day itself? So uh, the Texas Civil Rights Project is a member, a proud member of the Texas Election Protection Coalition, um, a group, a grouping of dozens and dozens of civil rights organizations here who work day in and day out to help voters have the information they need to vote and to help them solve problems they have while voting. So we are, we're already at work um, early every morning, late at night, uh, helping voters who come our way who need help. And so any voters who need to reach out to us and that we can help, they can call us at 866-OUR-VOTE, O-U-R, and we will help them right away. And we're going to be doing that 
until the polls close on Election Day and even in the days thereafter as the dust settles on all of this. That's senior staff attorney James Slattery of the Texas Civil Rights Project. James, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And also reporter Ashley Lopez with KUT in Austin. Ashley, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's turn now to another set of restrictive measures that passed in Texas last year, one that's also having an impact on next week's primary. Hi, my name is Wendy. I'm calling from Conroe, Texas. And I was uh, calling in to comment on um, something that is a big um, issue for me when I go to the polls. It'll be uh, the abortion, new abortion laws. I'll be 50 this year. I'm a lifelong uh, Republican voter. Uh, This year, I will not be giving my vote to any Republicans because after looking up uh, who voted for what, I couldn't find one single Republican that voted against it. And as a woman, I feel like it's my body, my choice, and I'm not going to vote for anyone that wants to take those rights away from me, period. We're coming up on the six-month anniversary of SB8, a state law which bans abortions at six weeks of pregnancy. But six weeks of pregnancy doesn't mean six weeks from when you know you're pregnant. And the shortened time frame has caused confusion, chaos, and a flood of appointments at Texas abortion clinics. Here to tell us more is Caroline Kitchener. She's a national politics reporter covering abortion for The Washington Post. Caroline, welcome to 1A. Thank you so much for having me. So again, we're coming up on six months of these rules being in effect. What have you learned about their impact on providers? The impact has been tremendous. Right away, you saw abortions drop by approximately 60%. Um, And then, you know, what's been interesting and, and something that providers are telling me they really didn't anticipate was that over time, they started seeing more and more people coming in earlier in their pregnancies, people who were, you know, carefully tracking their periods and everybody was suddenly aware of this new law and and, and so anxious um, about, you know, being able to get an abortion or being cut off from that procedure. And so they started seeing more people coming in, you know, earlier than they had expected. I think one really important thing to remember is that before SB8 took effect, it was less than 20% of all abortions in the state of Texas that took place before six weeks of pregnancy. So, you know, everybody was expecting this to be, you know, absolute fallout. And, you know, it, 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 it has drastically impacted the number of abortions, but I think, you know, it, it, it has been surprising to see um, more people being, you know, more aware and coming in, you know, as early as possible, really anxious about these new restrictions. Well, just remind us what SB8 says. Well, SB8 says that abortions are illegal after six weeks of pregnancy. And and, and like you said, you know, there, there have been many GOP leaders who have said, you know, it's, it's okay, you have six weeks, um, that's more than enough time to figure out, you know, whether you want to have an abortion. But in reality, you know, that's, that's six weeks after your last menstrual period. So that means that you don't actually miss your period until four weeks, which gives you a two-week window to, you know, decide whether you want to have an abortion, to, you know, make an appointment, to come in for your initial consultation, and then to come back, you know, for the actual procedure. So um, it's, it's a very, li- very, very limited window that people in Texas are dealing with right now. And, you know, the, the really... The really interesting part of SB8 is this provision that allows 
anybody, any private citizen to file a lawsuit if they believe that the law has been violated. So you can file a lawsuit against anybody that you believe has helped facilitate an abortion in any way in the state of Texas. So that really could cover anybody from the doctor who is performing the procedure to, you know, we heard a lot of talk about, you know, the Uber driver who takes you there to, you know, the the person who works at the abortion fund that helps you fund the procedure. So uh, really, really a whole host of people that are facing legal liability. Well, now that the law has been in place for a while, how common have these lawsuits been? Well, I think we've seen, you know, fewer than people were expecting. I think there, there was a lot of fear and anxiety when SB 8 first took effect that just, you know, everybody standing outside of an abortion clinic was going to just start flooding everybody with lawsuits. That really didn't happen. And, you know, interestingly, anti-abortion advocates and, you know, people behind this law really don't want that to happen because when you get those challenges then that's when you know the that's when the abortion rights advocates can start challenging this in court more easily so we really we did see um, Alan Braid. Uh, he is a abortion provider in San Antonio. He, you know, wrote a very you know, high profile, a high profile editorial in the Washington Post um, back in September, saying, you know, look, I violated this law, and there were, you know, a few people who filed cases against him. But other than that, we really haven't seen very much of this. I mean, people are just. People are so scared. Abortion providers are are so anxious about this. We actually saw a lot of people quit right when it happened for fear of um, you know of, of, of these kinds of lawsuits. We're discussing the six week abortion ban in Texas. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations. Download our One A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our check-in on abortion restrictions in Texas. We wanted to get a sense of what it was like inside one of these Texas providers, so we spoke with Amy Hagstrom-Miller. She's the CEO and founder of Whole Women's Health, an abortion provider with four clinics in Texas. We began by asking her about SB8's impact on her doctors and their would-be patients. There's a lot of trauma. Um, one of the things I try to explain to folks is banning abortion like this doesn't change the need for safe abortion in the community. Uh, there's no plan in Texas for reducing unplanned pregnancy or helping people uh, with healthcare interventions to increase maternal mortality rates or help uh, outcomes, right? And so um, patients are stunned and they understand that they are being forced to carry a pregnancy against their will 
The majority of people we serve in Texas are already parenting. Um, almost 70% of our patients are parenting already. So they know exactly what having another child would mean for their lives, uh, emotionally, financially, all of the variables. And um, they're stunned. Sometimes they're frozen. Um, sometimes they get angry, not always right away, um, but uh, they get angry wondering why these rules are in place now and they weren't, um, you know, for their friend or their sister or last time they needed abortion care. What impact has the new rule had on staffing? So it has been a topsy-turvy environment, um, and I keep reminding everyone that's by design. It's supposed to be. Um, And I have been remarkably impressed with the stamina uh, and the commitment of our staff uh, to weather these kinds of storms um, and their commitment to being there for the people in their community. Uh, Initially, the shock and the fear of what is this going to mean? Are we going to be able to see anybody? Do we have any patients who are going to make it through these barriers? Um, and the shock of, are people going to be bringing lawsuits against us? You know, the, I think the coverage at the beginning was all about, you can sue your clinic staff, you can sue your doctor, you can sue your friend, you can sue the Uber driver, et cetera. So initially folks were terrified about the people out front who scream at them all the time, um, you know, bringing lawsuits against them. And as time has gone on, um, we have realized that um, the opposition is winning, um, that SB8 is something we haven't been able to knock down, and all the clinics in Texas are complying. So that personal fear of a lawsuit being brought brought against staff personally, I think, has relaxed a little bit. Um, And it's hard to describe. They're, They're on edge at the same time that they're deeply committed and the two go hand in hand. I think a lot of folks who've worked in human rights and justice work in multiple areas in the, in the country and internationally understand that, Um, you know, there are, there are fears and risks yet sometimes that environment deepens our commitment because we know um, that the people we're serving need us even more than ever. Have you lost any staff as a result of SB8? Sure. So at the beginning, even when the law was signed into law before it went into effect, uh, when the bill was signed into law, uh, we had some folks um, leave. It wasn't a lot, but we had a few people, um, you know, throughout the state leave and really say, I don't, I'm afraid I don't want to work in this environment. There's so much up and down and I'm scared and I can't put my family at risk, et cetera. Uh, we've always been able to maintain enough staff to see patients and to keep all the clinics open this whole period of time. But there's been ebb and flow. Um, and keep in mind that we're also navigating a pandemic. We're navigating a Texas landscape where Omicron and Delta um, ran rampant in Texas, more than a lot of places in the country. So that has affected the workforce. Um, Our workforce is not all that different than our patients. Um, Working moms who are navigating work and school for their kids, sometimes having to homeschool because of um, school closures, et cetera. And childcare has been incredibly disrupted for um, the folks who who work at Whole Women's Health. So it's been a, a real challenge on multiple levels. Um, recruiting has been different, um, you know, to hire and fill our open positions. And that's not only unique to Texas. Um, Part of that is a workforce issue nationally. Um, 
but in Texas, we have that extra variable of SBA. And so uh, it has been more challenging to, to recruit folks. Um, but we have just even in the last uh, few weeks, we've added, I think, eight new staff to the Texas clinics um, because we're noticing more people are coming in before six weeks um, than we had prior to SB8 going into effect. And that's been a little surprising, um, but it makes sense um, when folks are able to make their appointment, um, when it makes the most sense for them and their families and their work. Uh, we noticed about 85% of people would have an abortion after six weeks. When folks can only get an abortion before six weeks, and that's their only option, we've noticed more people are coming in earlier. Um, and they're desperate. Many people come in before they've even missed a period, before they've even done a pregnancy test, because they're so scared they're going to be denied abortion and be forced to travel or continue a pregnancy that they don't feel ready for. And so we have seen um, proportionately more folks coming in. It's still uh, a lot less than we used to see. So we're maybe at about 40% of, of, of the people we were able to help a year ago at this time. Um, but it was a little more than we'd expected at the beginning and it's changed, right? So the word on the street and the communities, you know, gets out and people are like, you might not be able to get an abortion in Texas. So if you've even had unprotected sex or, you know, the condom broke, hurry up, right? So what is ahead for you and, and the clinics in the, in the months to come? Good question. So, you know, of course, we're all preparing for the decision in the Dobbs case in, in Mississippi. Uh, you know, for Texas, I think we're sort of already in a scenario um, that's worse than a 15-week ban because we've got a six-week ban here. And I think we're just doing our best to get the word out that abortion is still legal that uh, Roe hasn't fallen yet, um, and that uh, people deserve access to safe abortion, and that abortion makes our communities and our families healthier and safer. And just trying to remind people that abortion doesn't just exist because there's a clinic there, but the need for abortion has been uh, present for centuries in this country, and that people in Texas deserve access to safe care just like people everywhere. Um, and keeping the doors open to the clinics, keeping misinformation at bay. Uh, we have done a ton of fundraising in order to keep our clinics open and also in order to make sure that finances are not a barrier for people to get in and get seen as soon as possible. Uh, so we've basically uh, been able to work with abortion funds and the Justice Fund at the National Abortion Federation to make abortion free um, if folks can get in before six weeks. And so that we can just reduce that hustle that many people experience where they're trying to, to, you know, be able to pay for the care. So those are the things we're committed to um, and that we will, we will remain steadfast in um, trying to be as stable and consistent and um, sort of available to the people um, who need us in the communities we serve. Amy, thank you for speaking with us. You're very welcome. That was Amy Hagstrom-Miller. She's the CEO and founder of Whole Women's Health, an abortion provider with four clinics in Texas. Let's bring back Caroline Kitchener. She's a political reporter covering abortion for The Washington Post. Caroline, in, in listening to Amy, does that resonate with what you've heard from other providers? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Amy talked about the trauma and 
the just emotional difficulty of going to work every day in this kind of climate for her providers. And that's something that I hear across the board. Um, abortion providers, for the most part, you know, what I've found in a state like Texas, where access is so under threat and, and has been, um, you find that providers are doing this because they really believe in the work. And when most of what they're having to do is you know, look at an ultrasound screen and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. That's extremely draining and difficult. In your reporting, are you hearing concerns about how these decisions and these laws impact women's health more broadly or their access to health care? Absolutely. I mean, we know that these laws do not impact everyone equally. If you have the means to drive 10 hours or to get on a plane, you are going to do that. You're going to get an abortion. The people who are most affected by these laws, as always, are low-income women, women of color who cannot leave their state um, and can't leave can't leave their region where abortion access is under threat. So, you know, that that's something that that everybody is going to be watching for. And I've, you know, I've also heard people talk about, you know, what what comes next? Is plan B next? You know, is birth control next? You know, I, I, I think that there's a real fear among abortion advocates that this is, you know, this is just going to continue. So what's next in your reporting, Caroline? Well, I'm keeping an eye right now on all the state legislatures. They are moving fast. Really, we're seeing states throw everything that they possibly can at the wall to see really what sticks with the Supreme Court decision. We don't know what the Supreme Court is going to say. They could uphold Roe, they could ban it, they could do something in the middle, and you're seeing states really trying to pass all sorts of different kinds of laws, hoping that when that Supreme Court decision comes down, something sticks. That's Caroline Kitchener, a politics reporter covering abortion for the Washington Post. Caroline, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Today's producer was Paige Osborne. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.